We can begin this morning by giving thanks to God that he's brought us to this, uh, these final hours of our retreat. But let's try to make good use of the time this morning and not be looking too far afield, thinking about, well, what's the route I'm going to take back home? How long will it take me to pack and drag my bag down to the car? Um, can I kind of eat my lunch quickly so I can be the first one out of the parking lot? Um, because this morning may be, for some of us, the most important time on our retreat. And we don't want to miss out on that. It may be that in the few hours we have left, that the Lord will be, that he has chosen this time to communicate some grace to us or, or some insight to us or some other spiritual benefit. So let's, let's try to remain 100% here uh, this morning and not uh, have a divided heart where half of, us, half of us is on the way home and half of us is still here. Because, you know, half the fun and the delight of, of baking a cake and eating a cake is the icing on it, which always goes last. After the cake has been baked, it has to cool off, and that may take a few hours before the icing is put on, and only then is it ready to be served. So perhaps uh, this portion of the treat will be the icing on the weekend. We don't know, but we want to be open to that. When we consider the Holy Family as kind of a model and teacher for our families, we can't overlook the fact that there are rich opportunities in our normal, ordinary family life to grow in all the virtues of which we have spoken, which we've meditated upon, and the most important and the fundamental virtues, of course, the theological ones, faith, hope, and charity. So let's ask the Lord to help us to pray about those virtues this morning. As you know, a, a virtue is a habit of the soul. It's a good habit. Bad habits are vices. Good habits are virtues, good moral habits. And one of the ways we overcome our vices is by developing the opposite virtue. So if, for example, a person examines their conscience and says, well, you know, I'm lacking in patience, which is a human virtue. I'm lacking in patience. The, the way of overcoming that impatience is to develop the virtue of patience, which comes about by doing acts that require the person to practice patience. Well, if we look at the theological virtues, we call them theological because they come from God. Theos is the, uh, is the root of that word theological, theos and logos in the Greek. The, uh, you know, the word of God is, uh, is literally what theology means. So a theological virtue comes from God. They do not come about through our own human effort. They are infused virtues. We cannot have faith unless God gives us faith. We cannot have hope unless God gives us hope, and we cannot have charity, supernatural charity, unless God gives us charity. Thankfully, he does give us those virtues. Uh, from the moment of our baptism, he infuses faith, hope, and charity into our hearts. And they're strengthened by 
our subsequent reception of the sacraments throughout our life. And we can, in cooperating with those virtues, allow space in our soul for them to grow. But we should never doubt that we have faith or hope or charity. The only way we can lose charity, for example, is through serious sin that extinguishes charity. It doesn't necessarily extinguish faith or hope, it, does, it extinguishes charity, which can then be re-enkindled through a good and sincere confession. Uh, but we shouldn't doubt that we have faith or that we have hope or that we have charity for living in the state of grace. Now there are times, certainly, when our faith seems to be limited, when our faith doesn't seem to be very strong. That doesn't mean we don't have faith, it just means we've come up maybe to the limit of our faith, we've come up to the frontier and in those moments, what we need is to expand and push out those frontiers, push out those boundaries, so that there's faith, there's room for faith to grow. And we should have complete confidence that God wants that to happen in our life. He wants us to grow in faith. He wants us to grow in hope and in charity. So what can we say about faith? Well, first of all, it's a, again, it's a supernatural virtue that functions in a particular way. It disposes our intellect, our mind, which is one of the powers of our soul. It disposes our intellect to say yes, to reveal truths. It is a, a way of acknowledging and accepting what God has revealed through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. That's what faith is. We have to be very careful when we talk about these virtues that we shouldn't identify them with emotions with our passions. They're not related to how we feel about things. Uh, our generation, last couple of generations, have been very sensitive, to be redundant, uh, been very sensitive to this point because we live in a really therapeutic society where our feelings are sometimes exaggerated in terms of their importance. And that, of course, has led to all sorts of kind of odd extremes of this phenomenon, you know, the snowflake mentality, right? where a person kind of literally melts, they're so delicate they melt when they encounter any kind of, any kind of countercurrent in their life. Um, why? Because they're just not maybe as, as profoundly rooted in reality as, they, as a, a normal person should be. But faith is a supernatural virtue, again, a gift from God, that uh, disposes the person to assent in their mind, to say yes in their mind. So it's an intellectual exercise to the truths revealed by God. And it is an absolutely unmerited gift of God. It's a, it's a free gift. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. It's something that gives freely. And it is his greatest gift to us. And we show thanksgiving and gratitude for the gift of faith by safeguarding it and living in consequence with it. So in other words, allowing our faith and the consequences of faith to guide our life. And to safeguard it. To safeguard it is a great treasure. Not to put our faith in danger. How does a person put their faith in danger? In a number of ways. They could expose themselves to influences that run contrary, contrary to the faith. Um, Certain forms of media, certain forms of reading or of entertainment may run contrary to the faith because they contain messages that are opposed to God's revealed truth. We have to be very careful about these things. We don't want our minds to become infected. That doesn't mean we're closed off to the world, 
But it's just that we don't put ourselves in danger unnecessarily. And our faith extends beyond God himself to also the church, which, which he has founded through Christ. And of course, there are times in history, our own time being one of them, when it's very difficult sometimes to have faith in the church because we see um, people who have been uh, pastors in the church, and of course we can also see lay faithful, no one gets off the hook on this one, who have damaged the church through their sinfulness. And the temptation is to reject, uh, if not all religion, to reject the church because she has been stained by the sins of many. But who wants the, the devil to be very pleased with that? And we have to be those, again, let's go back to Romans 12, 21, to overcome, we overcome evil by an abundance of good. We have to be catalysts for purification in the church by seeking that purification in our own life. And if we lose sight of the fact that faith is founded and rooted in Christ, we're going to really have a difficult time. What does Jesus say in the gospel? John 16, truly, truly I say to you, if you ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. We should have complete confidence when we bring our petitions before the Lord that he will grant them if they're for our good. And if they're not for our good, that may, may mean he has something better prepared for us, and he may not grant what we ask, but will grant something else. And often what he grants is a purification of our desires. So we stop desiring the things, maybe, even if they're good in themselves or not best for us, and we start desiring the things that we might not have even thought of, which are optimal for us. Well, so what are some of the ways in which an operative faith impacts our day? Um, well, the, the, we've considered this already, but the, the, first, uh, the first kind of response of faith is to obey the commandments, to live in harmony with the commandments, with the Beatitudes. And overcoming ourselves, you know, for the sake of strengthening our belief. Think of the, of, uh, you know, the blind man, Bartimaeus, who was there begging by the side of the road. And the only possession that he had was his cloak, his mantle, that kept him, you know, warm during the night and which protected him from the sun during the day. It was his, almost like his home, and the one precious possession that he had. And yet when Jesus finally calls him, he has no hesitation. He throws off the cloak and goes to the Lord. He throws it off. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of say to somebody, please hold this for me. He knows it's going to hold him back because it's big and bulky and heavy. And so he doesn't want to be hindered. And he throws it off without any kind of consideration as to what he will do without it because he hears the Lord calling him. We have to be willing, too, to throw off things that are good, because it was good that he had this cloak. It served a good purpose. Uh, we have to be willing, nevertheless, to throw off things, even that are good, in order to have something better. You know, again, like the rich young man who was asked to give up something that was good, his possessions, there's nothing evil about that. We presume he acquired them in a in an upright and honest way, but he, he was asked to, to lay them aside so there'd be room in his life for something better. 
And so I think a kind of practical consequence of faith in our life is that it kind of, it forces us to ask ourselves, am I making compromises? Am I, am I doing the minimum as opposed to the maximum? Am I just trying to get by? Uh, am, I, am I making sure that I'm not overdoing all this religion stuff? We've probably all heard that at least once in our life said about us or said about others. Oh, they take their religion far too seriously. Oh, okay. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> I think that means that that person is making somebody else feel guilty. I think that's what that means. How can we take it too seriously? How can we take the life of God too seriously? Now, that doesn't, you know, they may take some religious practices too seriously in the sense that, uh, you know, it's not our vocation typically to be in church all day in the Adoration Chapel for 12 hours. And in the meantime, we don't go to work, we don't pay the bills, we don't cook the meals, we don't clean the yard, uh, we don't pay the taxes, we don't take care of the mortgage, we don't help our neighbor. We're, you know, it's good to be praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament, but unless we are a cloistered religious hermit, and that's a very specific kind of vocation, our vocation's in the world. We need to have it fueled by prayer and closeness to the sacraments and everything, but you know, if we're spending 18 hours a day in the Adoration Chapel of the parish and not carrying out our other duties, um, there's, we're lacking a balance there. And someone could say, well, it's not that they're taking their religion too seriously. They're taking one practice and giving it disproportionate importance, and they're neglecting other things. Because remember, we talked about and we considered ordinary life. This is also an avenue for holiness. And uh, it can be just as important to go about our professional work or our domestic work or serving our families, that can be just as important in terms of its spiritual and supernatural consequences for us as participating in the time of formal prayer, adoration, even the Mass, which obviously has a much higher importance in the grand scheme of things. But subjectively, these other ordinary things, if they're, if they're transformed by the, the charity and the love and the self-offering that we incorporate into them, uh, can be just as subjectively essential to us in our growth and holiness as other things. So one of the ways that we practice faith, obeying the commandments, but also not letting anything hinder us, not you know, making sure we're not compromising, just getting by, doing the bare minimum. It's like you know, the asking, asking a young person... Um, uh, after they've taken their exams at the end of the semester in school, or if they've gotten their report cards. Um, how's school going? Oh, I'm, I passed all my classes. Really? You got a D minus and everything? Even PE? You got a D minus and PE? Who gets a D minus and PE? Um, no, no, no. I, A's, and, okay, A's and B's or whatever. C's here and there. I don't know. But. Uh, would we be satisfied if we made straight D minuses? Or if our children made straight D minuses? If they were doing the best that they could, if they were making heroic effort, they're really applying themselves, we'd be very, we'd be very pleased that they passed. Right? If, if that represents the best they can do. They really, because you know, we've all had our ups and downs with very, very subject matters in school over the, uh, our educational career, and it's true for your children, grandchildren. And sometimes things don't go well, and kids have to really work hard to master a very difficult subject. And man, you squeak by with a C minus or something, or a D plus. Do they even give D pluses? I don't know. Um, and you go, Phew. 
I passed my class. Thanks be to God. But that's not because they were slacking. It's because they were working hard. But, you know, we don't want to have that to be kind of the standard for us. How much can I slack off and, and still kind of inch over the finish line? And one of the consequences of a life of faith is optimism. Because it, faith helps us to see that the battle that is present in the world and in our own soul has already been won. It's already been won by the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. The great battle of the cosmos has already been won. And we, by the grace of God, are on the victorious side. Now, that victory is not yet fully applied. We know that just by making examination of conscience. That victory of Christ is not yet fully realized in our lives or in the world. It will be one day. But the victory has already been won, and that should give us optimism. That doesn't mean things aren't going to get worse in some respects, in the, whatever society or time or place we happen to be. But it does mean ultimately the battle has been, and the enemy has been vanquished. And that should give us optimism. Not a kind of false optimism where we think everything is perfect and rosy and wonderful, but a supernatural optimism where we say, well, even though sometimes it seems as though Christ is asleep in the boat, we know that he's, he's really active and he's continuing to steer and guide the world and the church. And we want to be part of that. We want to be on the boat with him, even if he seems to us to be asleep. Um, and that should give us confidence. And it should help us in moments, you know, kind of trial or doubt. But if we come up to the edge of our faith, we think our faith is weak, we should simply ask the Lord to increase our faith. And make acts of faith, interior acts of faith, saying, Lord, I believe, despite my doubts, despite my, despite my failings, I believe. Please push out these boundaries. Make more room in my heart so that, that faith can increase. And together with faith is the virtue of hope. So hope is rooted in faith in the fidelity of God who loved us first. And its proper object is holiness. So if we're living with hope, we will also strive for holiness of life. Because hope is the virtue that's proper to the Christian as a wayfarer, as a pilgrim, bent on eternal life over the passage of time. You know, I think we should think about the last things frequently because there can, they can be for us a, a source of chastening but also a source of hope and always a, a way of helping keep things in perspective because our ultimate aim in life is not just to get a particular car, it's not just to find a parking spot near the door of some place um, and it's not, you know, just to have an easy life in, in a certain respect. If those things come to us, we can be grateful for them. The ultimate aim and purpose of our life is heaven, is eternal life, which we cannot gain on our own, and we cannot presume to receive on our own. It's something that God gives, and it's a fruit of fidelity. And so if we live with hope in eternal life, we will be, practically speaking, led to undertake a serene interior struggle. We've spoken about struggle a little bit, having a strategy, having spiritual weapons. 
So if we have a hope for eternal life, if we have a desire for eternal life, that will help orient our mind and our heart to the understanding that it's worth everything. It's worth everything to strive for heaven. It's worth everything to open our life to the grace of God so that we can merit or that we can receive, I should say, the gift of eternal life. And that should, I think, that operates the virtue of hope in helping us to have a peaceful but intense interior struggle. And it is shown that hope is operative through beginning again as often as necessary. Again, we're in the season of Lent. Sometimes people make a mistake when they approach Lent and they have good intentions, but sometimes they may see it as a kind of spiritual strongman competition. Okay, I'm going to give up potato chips for Lent. If it kills me, I'm going to give them up. All right. Most of us wouldn't have a problem giving up potato chips, but if you're a 10-year-old, it might be a little tough. And, and so the you know, person who said that you know, embarks on Ash Wednesday, they've cleaned their house, they've eaten all the potato chips on Tuesday night, right? They've swept their house clean of potato chips and anything that resembles potato chips, and maybe they've discontinued some activities that, in which they would normally be eating uh, potato chips, like watching too much television, they're sitting there in front of the TV eating all these things. Or, uh, or playing video games, which is always a cause, you know, you need a little nourishment while you're doing that, and so nothing like the intense carb infusion of potato chips to help you move along. And then, you know, the Thursday after Ash Wednesday, they kind of collapse and they, have, they go out and buy a bag of potato chips and eat them all. This is going to be tougher than I thought. I might as well just give it up. I might as well just quit. I'll do something else. I'll give up Fritos. Or, I don't know, what if I give up Cokes or carbonated drinks or something. And then, the, you know, the next day they fail and they, get, they say, oh, I can't do this, I'll do something else. So a person approaching Lent as a spiritual Ironman competition is going gonna, is gonna to fail. Because one of the signs that we've made a good resolution for Lent is that we fail in it. Because it shows we've pushed ourselves a little bit. And we'll probably fail a few times. But that's part of the, the reason we chose that particular virtue to grow in or that particular habit to break or that particular food or drink to give up so we could train ourselves because we're not giving it up and we're not, we don't have that virtue. We don't have that, that quality that we want and so we, we're trying to strive to acquire it. It's not going to come overnight. And instead of giving up, the person should say, okay, I didn't do very well today. I'm going to start over tomorrow. Lord, help me do better tomorrow. And then he goes three more days before he has another potato, bag of potato chips. Well, that's better than going one day. And okay, all right, I, 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 I kind of, and it's not a sin, obviously. You make a resolution to give up the, you know, Frito-Lays or whatever. And uh, um, it's, uh, it's something a person is freely doing, so it's not a question of sin being attached to it. Um, but if one fails and then gives up, well, I mean, the whole purpose of the practice of conversion is lost. It's really kind of funny talking to little kids about what they're giving up for Lent. And things like potato chips do come up frequently. And they say, well, you know, I'm giving up, um, and they mention some kind of game on their phone or their computer. Oh, so you're giving up computer games. No, no, just this one, <laughs> right? 
is it not all of them? Or I'm giving up those ruffled potato chips or the barbecue potato chips, not the other ones, not the plain ones. I need the plain ones for Lent. The barbecue ones I'll save, you know, for Sunday or something or St. Joseph's Day. Um, but, you know, hope gives us, practically speaking, the desire to begin as often as necessary. And one of the dangers of, of a real intense life of faith is to think that, we, that, that after a retreat or after a confession, all of our spiritual problems are solved. That everything's going to be great from now on. Even when we're going back to a difficult situation, you know, however our life is structured, we're going to be moving forward. We're going to be optimistic. We're going to be. We're going to pray. We're going to be charitable. We're going to be filled with so much joy and zeal. And I hope that's true. But there'll be days when we're not. And we shouldn't let that discourage us. We just say, okay. At the end of the day, we make an examination. Lord, I didn't do very well today. Help me do better tomorrow. Make one or two little resolutions or renew a resolution, and then move forward. Start again. To begin again. So hope gives us that conviction that we always have to be beginning anew. Because, you know, when you think about it, the saints, with the exception of the Blessed Mother, the saints were not people who never sinned. They were people who, after they sinned, got up again. They repented and they started over. And some of the saints, when you read their their histories, you know, you... I wouldn't let some of the kids kids read some of the histories of some of the saints because they were pretty, they led pretty wretched lives, some of them. Not all of them, but there were some of them. And most of the biographies of the saints don't go into too much detail about that, which is good, just kind of mentioning it. But, uh, but you know, some led almost pagan lives until their conversion. And then their conversion usually was not just an instantaneous change that lasted for the rest of their life. It was a bumpy road that got a little less bumpy as they moved along. And what distinguishes their life after that big conversion is that whenever they failed, they, began, they got up again. In the past, when they failed, they never got up. They stayed down. They went down even further. They kept sinking. But once they had a, a grace of conversion, which may have been in a moment or may have been over an extended period of time, that's where they learned to get back up again. I mean, you look at St. Jerome. This example comes to mind. Brilliant, brilliant man and a bit of a curmudgeon. He was a bit of, he was a, bit of a gripey guy, which gives all of us hope, you know, because he became this, this great saint, a wonderful scholar. He translated the Greek and Hebrew scriptures into Latin, which was the common language in the West. So um, uh, he was the first one to do that. To, and uh, eventually went, moved to Bethlehem, and he died in Bethlehem. But he, could, you know, he had a temper, and he could lose his temper, and he could be short with people, and he could be really grumpy. And now we're not going to imitate St. Jerome in his grumpiness, but we do want to imitate him in, in his repentance because he was grumpy. You know, which all stems from probably being a little too sensitive about some things or just being impatient or the fact that he was always the smartest guy in the room wherever he went, you know. And he had very short fuse sometimes with people who couldn't uh, kind of keep up with him. But we see in the saints over and over again that they were willing to start over. And that is a, a sign uh, that we possess hope.
that we don't get discouraged. It's like a kid learning to ride, you know, a little baby learning to walk. And they're kind of toddling along, not to be redundant. And what do they, you know, and they, they lose their balance, they fall and they're behind. And what do they usually do? They laugh. Because they think it's funny. Every now and then they may cry. But usually they laugh. Because they think, this is such a joke. I'm trying to learn to walk and here I am. It's a good thing I have all my baby fat on me. Because I'm just, I'm bouncing all over the floor. We should have that attitude. You know, when we're, we're trying to make little progress, we're trying to learn to walk, spiritually speaking, and we fall. And sometimes we may feel like weeping, but we should just cry. Uh, we should cry tears of joy. And say, Lord, I'm just like a little kid. And help me to live as a child of God. And, and let me help, pull me up again so I can learn to walk. That's living with hope. And then finally, charity. We've spoken about charity so much, um, which is, of course, the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. In the Last Supper, Jesus said to his apostles, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, that's a pretty high standard. And, you know, that should resonate with us. Do people know us as disciples of Christ because of the charity with which we live? Not that we want to draw attraction, uh, attention to ourselves, but someone should be able to say by observing our life, I bet that's a Christian. Look at the way she's living. That must be a Christian soul. I think Christians are crazy. I think Christi Christianity is crazy. I think it's nuts. But this person believes it, and you can tell by the way they're living. That's pretty impressive. That should be, ideally, how people would react to a believer. Because charity is a central virtue of the Christian life. And how can we live charity kind of in the concrete things of our ordinary life? Well, I think part of it, you know, is kind of resisting the temptation towards egotism in family and professional life. Like always wanting to be first, always wanting to be the one that has the final word. I don't know how many of you text, but sometimes if you're texting, and I think that's a great way of communicating with people directly, as long as that's not the only form of communication, you know. Um, because it is kind of impersonal. But, you know, there's some people you can text, and they always want to have the last text, right? How was your treat? Oh, it was great. Tell me more. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, wonderful. Uh, when are you coming home soon? Uh, and then, you, okay, goodbye. All right. And then, you, you know, they always want to have the last word. Or sometimes we're the one that always wants to have the last word. Or maybe we both want to have the last word, and this kind of text stream goes on for, like, forever and ever. Um, and, and there's nothing necessarily, you know, corrupt about that in the person who's trying to communicate, but, uh, but there may be a little subtle, you know, wanting to always be the one in control of the conversation. So, you know, one of the consequences of living charity is that we're always struggling against our pride and our egotism and the narcissism, which is so prevalent in our society and which, which can consume us if we're not attentive to it. And, you know, together with charity comes fortitude. 
Because if we're really charitable, we're also going to be courageous. Because a person who's charitable, who living charity, also should be a person who's able to see what is true and to see what is good. Because that will flow from someone who has the love of God in their heart. And so we should, a true charity will always be matched with fortitude, with courage, so that we can always, so that we'll never be afraid to live charity, which sometimes means, especially with those over whom we have authority in our families or sometimes at work, you know, to allow charity to become a corrective for the other person. Parents correct their children all the time. You know, when, when my eldest nephew was born, you know, many, many years ago, I, not having any children at all, was wondering, well, I thought my sister-in-law was correcting him an awful lot. Poor little, poor little kid, I thought, you know. Every little time he did something that he shouldn't do, she'd correct him. And she wasn't mean about it. She would just correct him. And just, you know, very kindly, very, just like a good, firm mother would correct him. Not his head, okay. And he grew up to be the most polite, considerate young man. All of you would want your granddaughters to marry him. <laughs> but he's marrying someone else in a couple months, so that's over. Okay. And I, you know, I, and I even mentioned to my mother once, I said, you know, is she correcting him too much? She said, don't stay out of it. You don't understand. You're a man. <laughs> and you don't have any children. And again, it wasn't anything mean or oppressive, but you know, I didn't have any memory of that. You know, uh, although I'm sure my parents corrected me too and corrected all of our siblings, I just never paid attention to it, I suppose, at that, in that way. But he turned out beautifully, and all their kids were just really very well adjusted, very polite, very kind, very virtuous, all very good Catholics. And that's because the parents had the courage that went along with the charity, you know, to, to show them how to live properly, even if it, I'm sure it's a little uncomfortable for parents to correct their children. You don't want to, you want to, you want to hug them and kiss them and, and uh, you know, console them, but sometimes, you know, you have to be a little directive, right? And uh, that's even harder. And so uh, parents never understood when they were children, when their parents said to them, this hurts me more than it hurts you, we never believed that. <laughs> but once you became a parent, you started believing it because you experienced it too. So I think it's also good for us to think, how do, in my life, how do courage and charity go together? Am I being courageous and living out my Christian life? We could go on about all these things, but let's instead wrap up our prayer and ask the Lord to help us to ponder them in these few moments left as we prepare for the Holy Mass. And I think one important thing for us to do on, on this retreat is any, on any retreat is to try to, to develop one or two small resolutions we can carry with us. Because people will ask you when you get back home in a few hours, how was your retreat? And you'll say, great. It was so quiet, unlike here. <laughs> no. And um, someone else was doing the cooking. I like that. Why don't, honey, why don't you start cooking from now on? <laughs> uh, I think the best response after a retreat when people ask, uh, how was your retreat, is to say, ask me, ask me in three months. Because our retreat, I mean, it's going to be great for the first week, maybe. But I think it's good if we make some resolutions, some very concrete kind of goals for 
you know, the, the time ahead and to say, well, I need to grow in this particular virtue and I'm going to do it by doing this. Or, you know, I'm going to pray for 10 minutes a day. That's something very concrete. It's better to say that than to have a goal, I'm going to pray more. That's not a good goal because it's not concrete. And at the end of the day, we make an examination of conscience. Okay, my goal is to pray more. Did I pray more? Hmm, compared to what? Compared to yesterday? Maybe, maybe not. Okay, I prayed for 10 minutes. Is that enough? Or I prayed my rosary. Is that enough? It's better to say, we can't answer the question yes or no at the end of the day. So this is my point. Or to say, I'm going to be more charitable. Great idea, bad resolution, because it's not measurable. But to say, you know, I'm going to practice charity uh, with my husband by every morning making the first words out of my mouth to him something kind. You may be doing that already. So there'll be the second words that come out of my mouth will also be something kind. And we know immediately, have we, did we do it, did we not do it? We can answer yes or no. And if I make a resolution, I'm going to pray the rosary every day. We know at the end of the day we did it or we didn't do it. And if we didn't do it, we say, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. It doesn't bind us under sin. We say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm going to do better tomorrow. Please help me do better tomorrow. And maybe the thing is I need to set a time for it rather than just letting it drift throughout the day. And I'm thinking, oh, I've got to say my rosary, I've got to say my rosary. Why well, don't I say, well, I'll say it at 10 in the morning. Or I'll say it uh, before lunch or after lunch or before dinner, whatever it may be. Or I'll stop by the church when I'm running errands and I'll pray my rosary there. Or I'll make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament every day or I'll spend 10 minutes in Eucharistic adoration, or whatever, whatever, you know, we think the Holy Spirit is leading us to, let's try to translate that into one or two little resolutions that are concrete. And again, a good resolution is one to which we can answer, the, answer it by saying yes or no. And then stick with it, write it down, look at it in the morning, look at it in the evening. And once we seem to have conquered that area and it's built up into a habit, then we can move on to something else and give ourselves another resolution. That's, one of the, that's, that's having a spiritual strategy, okay? that we're marking out paths of spiritual growth. So, so give yourself one or two things. Don't give yourself a list of 10 things. No one, can, no one can do that. One or two things. We should do what we can do, and then once we've got that done, move on to something else we can do. Let's not give us things that are impossible. Don't say, I'm going to say 50 rosaries a day. You can't do it. No one can do it. It's impossible. I'm going to fast on bread and water five days a week. Don't do it. You can't do it. It's probably bad for your health. You can't do it. You know, to say I'm going to cut down on sweets, that's fine. Just make it very concrete. Um, and I think that will help carry, you know, your spirit of your retreat and translate it into your life a little bit more. We're going a little bit too long. But let's ask the Lord to help us as we uh, prepare to conclude the retreat with Mass shortly that, um, that we can really glean the fruit that he wants to give us from these, from, these, uh, from these days away. And again, let's try to keep our mind and heart here until the retreat concludes with the end of Mass.